Held in conjunction with the exhibition Pre-Raphaelites, Victorian Art and Design, 1848-1900, this symposium explored Britain's first avant-garde art movement in the context of other international modernisms. The young members of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, which was formed in 1848, shook the art world of mid-19th century Britain by rejecting traditional approaches to painting. Academics and curators consider modern art and craft movements in these lectures recorded on March 8th and 9th, 2013. The next lecture was Tira Lyra in a Mirror, Rhyming Visual and Verbal Form, by Elizabeth Helsinger, John Matthews Manley Distinguished Service Professor, Departments of English, Art History, and Visual Arts, University of Chicago. As you could probably tell from that recital of my projects, at least retrospectively, each new project kind of takes up unfinished business in the one before. So in this case, I realized when I'd finished Poetry in the Pre-Raphaelite Arts that uh, I hadn't really talked very much about sound. And what's more, I hadn't very talked very much about uh, the poets who worked with songs, which included, of course, both Rossetti and Mars, but also preeminently Swinburne. I'm not going to talk about Swinburne today, but I am going to do something that, in the context of uh, this symposium, may seem a little bit risky, and that is to argue not from but for analogy, or what I shall call, for reasons that I hope to make clear, the sometimes productive rhyming of visual with verbal form. My argument will be that analogical thinking between one medium and another was a generative strategy for poets and artists in circles around Rossetti and Morris in the late 1850s, and for that reason can be a useful way of approaching their visual work from that period. In the work which with I shall be concerned, primarily poems, drawings, watercolors, and painted furniture created during the so-called medieval phase of second-generation pre-Raphaelitism. The otherwise quite strange relationships among objects and persons, figures and ground, were strongly influenced by just such analogical thinking. These artists, many of whom also wrote poetry, put traditional ballads and songs into productive relation to the work they were creating in the visual arts. By this means, they were able both to express distinctively modern views and to do so in presciently modern forms, moving beyond dominant narrative and realist conventions in both media. The old ballads to which both poets and artists turned in the 19th century were drawn from several influential collections of traditional ballads published in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Rossetti, Morris, Elizabeth Siddle, and Edward Byrne Jones were certainly familiar with, with Sir Walter Scott's Minstrelsy of the Scottish Border, which was published in 1802. Rossetti gave an inscribed copy of this book to Siddle when she began work on a series of illustrations for a new ballad anthology compiled by Rossetti's poet friend William Allingham. While neither Allingham's nor Scott's collections included music, we know that the friends who were also interested in the old ballads as song, were, were also interested in the old ballads as songs. Georgiana Byrne Jones, who played the piano at gatherings of these friends in the 1850s and 60s, mentions several English and Scottish ballads as among the old songs in both French and English that the group favored. One of Rossetti's favorite ballads, she notes, was The Three Ravens, 
collected by Scott and possibly sung by their Scottish ballad singing friend Peter Faulkner of Morris Marshall Faulkner and Company as the Twa Corbys. Yes. Uh, in the Scottish version, there are only two of these carrion-eating crows, or ravens. I'm just going to read part of this. And please forgive me, I do not have an appropriate Scottish accent, so uh, you'll have to make do with what I can make, die with it. As I was walking all alane, I heard twa corbies making a main. The tane unto the other said, what shall we gang and dine today? In behind yon old failed dyke, I wot there lies a new slain knight, and nobody kens that he lies there but his hawk, his hound, and lady fair. His hound is to the hunting gain, his hawk to fetch the wild folk fowl him. His lady's tain another mate, so we may mack our dinner sweet. Ye'll sit on his white house bane, and I'll pick out his bonny blue ain. We eye lock of his golden hair, we'll feek our na- nest when it grows bare. The Trois Corbys display several features typical of the traditional songs that intrigued these 19th century Puravulites. Narration is both oblique and minimal. There is a story, but we gather it only indirectly from an overheard dialogue between two birds. The poem's narrator offers none of the explanations we might expect. A knight has been slain, his body left behind by his hound, his hawk, and his lady, all gone off to other loves and labors. The ballad functions as a grim epitaph, sung, or rather croaked, over his abandoned body. Those who sing or say the ballad perform the formal farewell the knight has not been given, adding their voices to the imagined utterances of the body's only watchers, the ravens preparing to dine. Many a one for him makes main, but none shall ken where he is gain, or his white banes when they are bare, the winds shall blow forevermore. The immediacy of the sung or spoken word the abruptness yet indirectness by which the tale is told without elaboration, the rhyming rhythmic presentation in short lines meant to be remembered and repeated again and again, all these are characteristics of the traditional ballad. 19th century poets were attracted to such songs not only for their spare narration but also for their lack of sentimentality. The absence of character motivation, the simplicity and immediacy of the presentation together with the chant or song-like character of verses structured by frequent rhythmic repetition, rhyme, and often by refrains, all contrasted strikingly with modern reflective or sentimental narrative poetry and prose. To read or hear an old song underlined the pastness of the past, its distance and difference, even at the level of poetic form, from modern ways of thinking, writing, and narrating. It also suggested the, both the possibility of both writing and picturing differently, offering a way to break with the psychological and visual realisms that have become the norm. To understand how the Periaphelites reworked these traditional songs in both verbal and visual media, I want to look more closely at a curious moment in Tennyson's enigmatic lyric, The Lady of Shalott and the Pre-Raphaelite designs that illustrate it. This is a poem that looks back in more ways than one to old songs. 
In the passage that interests me, Lancelot, riding by a lonely tower and closing the eponymous lady, is heard singing what we might imagine to be the fragmentary refrain of just such a song. At the moment he sings his tirolira, his image flashes into a mirror in the artist lit the lady's tower room. This poem attracted many pre-Raphaelite artists. Holman Hunt, John Everett Millay, Elizabeth Siddle, and Rossetti each made one or more illustrative designs. And of course, the uh, large Hunt oil painting, which he did towards the end of his life, uh, is in the exhibition, as well as this design. Siddle and Hunt were particularly drawn to one moment in the poem for its substitutive play with verbal rhyme and visual gaze. The lady, shut up in her tower in the Isle of Shalott, is an artist under a mysterious curse. She must not pause in her work to look directly at the world outside her window. She too sings, though she's rarely heard or seen by passers-by. Mostly, she gazes at the shadows reflected in her mirror to weave them into a tapestry, a river, a road, and its travelers winding down to distant Camelot. Until, that is, Lancelot's dazzling image flashes into her mirror. And you can see it's right there. Uh, exclaiming, I am half sick of shadows, she turns fatally to gaze at him. Like Siddle, Hunt used the mirror to bring Lancelot into the space of the lady's tower, choosing the moment at which she looks at him. Both Siddle's and Hunt's designs condense into one image a fatal act and its consequences. Shalott and Camelot, hitherto separate, are brought together through the moving medium of Lancelot's mirrored reflection, though the real Lancelot remains unaware of the lady. With this forcible conjunction of two apparently incompatible worlds, the lady breaks the rules of her enchanted art. In Siddle's design, the mirror cracks. Again, you can see that it cracks right there. Um, in both Siddle's and Hunt's, the tapestry flies apart. The lady descends from her tower, stretches out in her boat, and singing while dying floats down the river to Camelot. One might see in this fable, not just, as Hunt believed, a moral lesson that artists like women should stick to their work, lower their eyes, and stay in their towers, but also a protest against the constraints of realist representation and an expression of the urge to disrupt them. Could there be an art that refuses to observe the distance between artist and reality, Shalott and Camelot, that accurate mimesis seems to demand? Poetic form itself emphasizes the separation of Shalott from Camelot in every stanza of Tennyson's poem. The first four lines of each stanza rhyme, followed by an indented refrain line whose last word is always Camelot. The rhymes, like the road and the river, run down to Camelot. This is the second stanza. Willows whiten, aspens quiver, little breezes dusk and shiver through the wave that runs forever by the island in the river flowing down to Camelot. The next three lines of the stanza also rhyme, but they conclude with a final line whose word is, last word is always shallot, insisting that the lady stay in her tower, 
her gaze and her knowledge locked, as it were, in the stanzas and the towers and closing forms. And we remember that stanza in Italian is, is the word for room also. Four gray walls and four gray towers overlook a space of flowers, and the silent hour aisle embowers the Lady of Shalott. This pattern, where the ostensible opening to Camelot mid-stanza is every time closed down by the reiterated Shalott, continues uninterrupted for eight stanzas, forming parts one and two of the poem. When in the first stanza of part three, Lancelot suddenly appears, however, a glittering, warbling figure riding by his tower, his name usurps the place of the Camelot rhyme in the stanza's first refrain, appropriately, since the glittering Lancelot is the concentrated glory of distant Camelot. A bowshot from her bower eaves, he rode between the barley sheaves. The sun came dazzling through the leaves and flamed upon the brazen greaves of bold Sir Lancelot. His proximity to the Lady Shalott creates attention too great to be sustained. The formerly attentive reader is shocked in the last line of the fourth stanza of part three to find Lancelot in place of the expected Shalott. The night has entered the lady's space. From the bank and from the river, he flashed into the crystal mirror. Terra liver by the river sang Sir Lancelot. Forsaking her mirror and the tapestry that repeats the mirror's reflected reality, the lady rebels. She left the web, she left the room. She made three paces through the room. She saw the water lily bloom. She saw the helmet and the plume. She looked down to Camelot. Out flew the web and floated wide. The mirror cracked from side to side. The curses come upon me, she cried, the Lady of Shalott. Poetic form anticipates what happens to visual form. The substitution of Lancelot for Shalott interrupts the pattern of the poem's refrains, enacting what the poem will go on to relate, the shattering effect of Lancelot's image on the visual order that mirror and tapestry reflect. The ballad's stanzaic pattern recovers. Lancelot's intrusion is, after all, an acceptably rhyming substitution. But the mirror and the tapestry, the model and the product of the lady's mimetic art, do not. Her careful imitation of the world's shadows cannot accommodate the dazzling presence of Lancelot who pulls all gazes and all rhymes to himself at the expense of established visual or verbal order. Tennyson manipulates the poem's formal patterns to make the poetic event imitate or rhyme with the visual, spatial event, the interruption of one corresponding to the disruption of the other. The unexpected substitution within an established verbal pattern points to the possibility of still more radical transformations in the visual arts. What might these be? Hunt and Siddle go no further than depicting the shattered mirror or the flying threads of tapestry. Their designs, however suggestive, do not try to let us look through the shattered glass. To do so might be to see the world as a fractured surface or discover in that tangle of flying threads new possibilities for patterns in line and color, where the usual conventions of realist perspective will no longer apply. In such an art, figure and ground may change places or merge, like Lancelot and Shalott, while a new order of representation struggles to be born. 
This is what is happening, I would argue, in Rossetti's illustration. The design is, at first glance, very hard to read. Every inch of the tiny surface, which is actually three and a half by three inches, is filled with curiously patterned objects and figures crowded up against one another and thrust forward toward the viewer, competing for visual attention and frustrating efforts to make out a human drama or to decipher spatial relationships. On what appears to be a very shallow stage, an oversized figure of Lancelot, awkwardly crammed between the struts of a landing pier, there's Lancelot, um, intently stares at the corpse of the recumbent lady whose coffin-shaped boat has just floated into Camelot. Her face, however, is turned sharply away, deflecting our gaze as well as his. The deep shadow that covers her closed eyes shuts out viewers on this side of the picture space just as firmly. Acts of thwarted looking, Lancelot's and our own, provide the emotional charge of the image. The frustration of the inquiring eye is repeated within the image, disconnected faces and hands of other figures. One, for example, thrusting a lighted torch at the corpse. Um, sorry, lost my place here. A crowd forward from behind Lancelot in the effort to see. But the slashing uprights and diagonals of the carved wooden landing piers, together with the curious torch-bearing peak-roofed boat hood, this thing, rising over the lady's head, obstruct their and our sight and further cut up the surface of the design. We are left to stare as if at a set of puzzle pieces or the disassembled parts of a stained glass window drained of its color. The arching necks of diving swans here behind the lady's boat mingle dangerously with the torch flames that surround her head. As what ought to be the distance between them collapses into the irregular shapes of a flat design. This is an image where the ground continually threatens to overwhelm the figures, the figures to disappear into a densely patterned ground. Rossetti's design for the Lady of Shalott, though it may have been suggested by the correspondence between visual and verbal substitution in Tennyson's poem, also recalls Rossetti's own early poetic experiments, particularly in his ballad pastiche, The Blessed Damozel. This poem, begun in 1847, was first published in 1850 in the short-lived Pre-Raphaelite journal, The Germ. Revised a few years later, it was republished in the Oxford and Cambridge magazine, the journal edited by Morris when he was an undergraduate, to which Burne-Jones contributed. Thus the poem, which has puzzled, intrigued, bemused, and irritated readers and critics ever since, is one important bridge between the literary artistic work of the PRB first generation and that of the second, Rossetti himself, Siddle, Burne-Jones, and Morris. Like Tennyson's poem, Rossetti's Blessed Damozel is a ballad-like narrative using poetic and typographic form to stage a perceptual clash between two people in their worlds. Where Tennyson manipulates rhyme, Rossetti manipulates punctuation to collapse the temporal, spatial, and psychological perspectives that normally keep two characters apart. Both poets adapt a once popular oral storytelling form in which events are starkly but obliquely presented, often through dialogue and without explanatory commentary. 
Repeating phrases, rhythms, and rhymes impart a sense of inevitability to the story's apparently inexorable unfolding. Bad things happen. The damsel, like the lady, dies. Stylized diction and occasional archaic terms, like, like the term damsel, enhance the effects of distance and difference, contradicting the expectations of modern readers conditioned by contemporary poetry and novels, and I'm talking about modern and mid-19th century, too. The Blessed Damozel exploits these possibilities in a more studied, self-conscious, and ultimately, I think, radical way than the Lady of Shalott. Rossetti exaggerates the strangeness of the form for present readers while making the difference between the poem's two principal figures that much more absolute. The damozel is dead and in heaven, her lover still living on earth. Tennyson's poem can accommodate the rhyming substitution of Lancelot for Shalott, but in Rossetti's, punctuation and imagery dramatize a complete absence of any common ground between the damozel and her lover. The poem shifts back and forth between Damozel leaning out from heaven's barred gates over the abyss of time and space and her still-living lover lying in an autumn fall of leaves, as he puts it. Her seemed she scarce had been a day one of God's choristers. The wonder was not yet quite gone from that still look of hers, albeit to them she left. Her day had counted as ten years. Parenthesis. To one, it is ten years of years. Yet now, and in this place, surely she leaned o'er me. Her hair fell all about my face. Nothing. The autumn fall of leaves. The whole year sets apace. Close paren. The lover senses something, but cannot quite convince himself it is the longed-for presence of the damozel. From his perspective, time, space, and mortality erect absolute barriers. It's been ten years of years since her death, and her inability to believe in her God, his inability to believe in her God or her heaven, will prevent his ever rejoining her. From her precarious perch on heaven's gates, time and space mean little. They have been separated only a moment, and she is constantly anticipating their reunion. Looking down, she sees vast gulfs of space and time, and there are a number of stanzas describing this, instantly traversable, however, by heavenly light and song. When she speaks, however, it quickly becomes clear that she is no better able than he to perceive him or the world he continues to inhabit. She can only imagine a future together in a child's parody of heaven. When round his head the aureole clings and he is clothed in white, I'll take his hand and go with him to the deep wells of light, as unto a stream we will step down and bathe there in God's sight. The perceptual difference that keeps them invisible and inaudible to one another is enacted for readers by the poem's typography. The damozel's speech is marked by quotation marks. The lover's unvoiced thoughts are enclosed within parentheses. For the reader, it's as if the lover's close autumnal woods were disconcertingly inserted into the damozel's views of the vast, specialized eternity. In the midst of a description of her view from the gates, were thrust into the modern, earthbound lover's mind. When, decades later, and in a very different painting style, Rossetti made a painting based on his poem, he put damozel and lover into separate picture spaces entirely. The damozel inhabits the main frame, while the lover is a small figure in a predella. 
Stylistically, however, this later image returns to post-Raphael conventions of realist convention, of representation, juxtaposing but not combining two images that differ primarily in scale. The poem, on the other hand, experiments with the disorienting effects on modern readers of a non-realist style in which one representational mode is enclosed within another. The lover's radical spatial and temporal difference is enacted typographically to create a perceptual shock inflicted on the reader. Startling images underline the difficulty for the reader of determining the kind of poem object that we're encountering. Some visual details, formally arranged as if to adorn a decorative image, appear to invite iconographic or symbolic decoding. The blessed damoiselle leaned out from the gold bar of heaven. She had three lilies in her hand, and the stars in her hairs were seven Pleiades and all of that. But this reading is not really rewarded, and indeed it competes with the different embodied reading invited by other details. And still she bowed herself and stooped out of the circling charm until her bosom must have made the bar she leaned on warm. Not only are lover and damoiselle unable to conceive the way each perceives the other, we too are challenged to discover how to read this poem. The damoiselle is presented to us as impossibly, a-logically, at once a warm body and a heavenly spirit. A visually decorative, if archaic, image that may be an enigmatic sign and a realistically sensuous presence. These antinomies can only coexist within the sustained verbal patterning of Rossetti's text. Rossetti's experiments with ballad form stimulated both his own and his friend's experimentation with older visual styles a few years later. Their poems and pictures place archaic and contemporary modes of representing and narrating in productive tension within the same image. Let me point you briefly towards the somewhat different ways that Siddle's watercolor Lady Clare, Burne Jones's Priorist Tale Wardrobe, and Morris's poem The Tune in the Seven Towers, written for Rossetti's 1857 watercolor of the same name, continue and extend Rossetti's experiments. And uh, unfortunately, while Lady Clare and the Prior's Tale Wardrobe were both in the London version of the exhibition, they've not made it across the Atlantic. Uh, The Tune of Seven Towers, Rossetti's watercolor, is here, however. Lady Clare was one of several designs Siddle produced to illustrate a projected anthology of old ballads that I've already mentioned, edited by Allingham. Though it's based on a ballad poem by Tennyson, both poem and picture recall the style of the old ballads collected by Scott, which was the source for Siddle's other completed pictures from those years, Sir Patrick Spence and Clerk Saunders. Siddle, who was also composing her own poems in ballad form at this time, constructs her visual designs out of flat expanses of rich color that reorganize the relations among figures, objects, and settings in spatially and ultimately psychologically disconcerting fashion, pointing the way not only back to medieval decorative arts, like the stained glass panel at the right of the image there, uh, but also forward toward more abstractly formal shapes composed of bold colored planes fitted together in ways that are finally expressive but difficult to read as figural scenes. Particularly... In the original drawing, it can take a while 
to make out that there are two figures in Lady Clare and to decipher their respective poses. The figures are welded together into a single curving form, perhaps almost sculptural, that takes on its own independent presence in the composition. Similarly, the strong architectural elements in her designs claim attention as independent arrangements of solids and planes, competing with the novel shape formed by the figures. Byrne Jones's Priorist Tale Wardrobe is a still more complex narrative composition. Wrapped across the broad face of the large wardrobe he painted as a wedding gift for Morris and his new wife, Jane. Chaucer's Canterbury Tales provide the inspiration, and there's Chaucer's portrait on the bottom left hand, the bottom right hand side. Uh, but Burne Jones's realization subordinates the Priorist's version of an anti Semitic folk legend to the pleasures of richly colored and intricately interwoven patterns where intersections create an almost abstract visual design even as they reproduce in flat, perspectiveless space a very wandering narrative line. And if I had time, I would try to trace out for you exactly what's happening here in this complex image of the, of, of the village with the, presumably the shul where the villagers are praying uh, and the perambulations of the, the little boy. The unexpected subject, the murder of a Christian child by medieval village Jews and the miraculous intervention of the Virgin, is a story of drastically separated cultures and their ill-fated intersections in a cramped and confining place. The suppression of distance and perspective underlines the forced, murderous interactions that result while it challenges the interpretive habits of modern viewers. My final example will return us to the modern ballad poems with which we began. In Rossetti's The Water Watercolor, The Tune of Seven Towers, human figures, each apparently absorbed in making or listening to music, appear emotionally isolated. Expressionless, they fail to interact except, apparently, through the music that they can hear and we must imagine. Both figures and objects are highly stylized and crowded into spaces radically compressed and strangely partitioned, punctured by unexpected openings on distant places, which, however, offer no access. Indeed, in the absence of the usual signs of spatial recession, distant places and figures, for example, the servant leaning in through a, a rear window to place the orange, the olive, uh, not olive, so it's orange tree branch, on the bridal bed, um, are thrust forward as if to the same plane as near ones. What might appear to the conditioned viewer as a scene in perspective is continually collapsing into a single, uncomfortably shallow space inhabited by figures whose actions seem entirely determined by the abstract and silent movements of musical form, themselves mirrored in and to us suggested by the intricate patterning of the picture surface itself as well as of the objects in it. And one of the things you should notice when you, if you study this, of course, is Rossetti is inventing the most fantastic furniture uh, as well as inventing all the patterns for everything that, that 
all the uh, which are painted uh, on the furniture and for uh, the clothing and so forth. And it's this that that contributes to as it were, this coming forward in prominence of what should be simply the ground for whatever the figures are enacting. Rossetti's picture does not refer to any known ballad. Morris, however, composed one, proving himself an apt student of the analogical experimentation that Rossetti began. Morris's poem repeatedly calls attention to the rhyming of sight with sound. The visual phenomena that belong to the poem's elliptically presented story, if such it can be called, are exchanged for the sounds of the ballad itself, its tune to which we are instructed to listen in the italicized refrains. No one goes there now, for what is left to fetch away from the desolate battlements all a row and the lead roof heavy and gray. Therefore, said fair Yoland of the flowers, this is the tune of seven towers. No one walks there now, except in the white moonlight, the white ghosts walk in a row. If one could see it, an awful sight. Listen, said fair Yoland of the flowers, this is the tune of seven towers. Each stanza, closing with the alternating refrains, underlines its status as an audiovisual experience. The only sure reality, however, is the printed poem. Not objects, but phrases, white moonlight, white ghosts, are made to walk all in a row by meter, rhyme, repetition, and typography. Although we do our best to imagine scene and story, the poem's narrated reel remains ghostly, no more than a verbal echo. The story fails to materialize. The rhyming of ghostly visual with echoing verbal form is, of course, itself a fiction, a pun which we must grasp visually on the page. Despite the imperative command, listen, we do not hear the tune Yolan plays, nor does the ballad reach our ears through oral performance. Morris's enigmatic, disconcerting poem plays wittily on the strangeness of Rossetti's pictures. To summarize, then, the appeal of poems and pictures like these is frankly not to a reader's or a viewer's pleasure in a human story, uh, at least not one where the elements of time, yesterday, today, tomorrow, of physical space, foreground, middle ground, background, or of personal feelings can be related to one another in a way that we would recognize as real. The connections that a narrative's different moments ordinarily invite us to imagine are suppressed or distorted. Orderly, temporal, plod, plod, and spatial recession are replaced by the instantaneous co-presence of all times and places, foreground and background, heaven and earth, the possibly lived past, and the present sounds of singing jostle one another in illogical simultaneity. In place of the clear relationships we expect, we are confronted by intricate interlocking shapes in line and color or the rhythmical verbal sounding of language arranged in printed lines and stanzas. Neither pictures nor poems will easily resolve into human story or scene. For us, as for 19th century readers, these old new poems and pictures appear as they were meant to appear very strange. Both poets and artists in the second generation of pre experimentalism 
mind work of the Middle Ages and early Renaissance to challenge audiences who expect realist portrayals of space and time or human characters with interiority and motivation. The poems read less like narratives than like perplexing audiovisual arrangements, polyphonic compositions where various voices perform their parts without apparent reference to one another, as if in obedience not to any sense of the real, but to some larger formal pattern perceptible only to the eye on the printed page. The artist's designs, though they appear to illustrate figures in narrative or dramatic scenes, disconcertingly allow these to disappear into decorative arrangements of flat and figured patterns. Absorbed into an art whose formal rules we cannot quite understand. This deliberate invoking of the alien, studied forms of a distant past to unsettle conventions of realist representation and confound narrative expectations, undertaken at once in poems and in visual designs, I have been arguing, corresponds or rhymes. The result, what is ancient, is suddenly the way to what might be modern. Or as the historian Michel de Certeau put it, such works open, quote, an interstice within the events and perceptions of the day through the representation of difference. An interstice within the events and representations of the day through the representation of difference. By selective redeployments of rhyming poetic and visual forms, old ballads remembered provoke analogous but different estrangements in poetic and visual form. They open a gap between the pastness of the past and the known present. Through that productive gap, the joint creation of poets and artists, something new might one day emerge. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.